welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at lifespringchurch.us. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. This is Mary, Martha, and the other Mary is what the book of Mark tells us. Verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Wrong place, wrong time. Seeking the living among the dead. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. You can be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of the Word of God today. Heaven is for the living. It's Resurrection Sunday, but every good sermon has a contrast. And so before I can talk about him being alive, I have to first talk about how he died. And it's a good remembrance to us today, the cross. The cross was a torturous instrument of death. The cause of death often by those on the cross was asphyxiation. The individual would literally suffocate from the fluids gathering in their body as they hung there. Add to this the inhumane and the cruel brutality of the Roman Empire. Individuals not only suffered nails and humiliation, but they were beaten, they were whipped, they underwent intense mocking and scoffing and belittling. Jesus Christ did not absolve himself as God robed in flesh. He did not step aside from the pain and the hurt and the suffering. In fact, he with purpose and with intention faced it. He took it. He endured it, knowing that in his pain and in his suffering, he was serving a greater purpose. And the greater purpose of Jesus Christ's death was you and I. He died for us. Jesus died for you. It's easy to say Jesus died for humanity. It's easy to say Jesus died for the church. It's easy to say Jesus died for good people. But Jesus didn't just die for groups of people. Jesus died for individuals. You and I. Jesus loves you enough that he would die on a cross to redeem you. He endured the cross. He endured the punishment. He endured the pain so that you could be free and you could be alive in Him. You see, death was our 
true punishment for sin. Yet God manifested himself in flesh. He was tempted in all manner like we are, yet without sin. He was lied upon by the religious. The mob turned against him. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was mocked. His beard was plucked from his face. A crown of thorns was placed upon his head to mock him as the king of the Jews. He was taken to a cross and brutally hung and crucified. In those moments, he took on sin so that you and I could be forgiven. I'm thankful for the cross. And while the flesh of his body was being bruised and ripped open and his flesh was being broken, out of that brokenness flowed the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever done any science experiments with solutions and chemicals. There can be some pretty powerful things you can mix up. You can put some pretty powerful stuff together in this world. Hydrochloric acid. Don't drink that. You might get an ulcer. This world has created some pretty powerful things. Nuclear power. The positive side of of nuclear power is they can run a submarine underneath the surface of the ocean for time on time on time. The horrors of nuclear power is the destructive power it has in an instant it can wipe out entire cities. The blood of Jesus Christ is the most powerful element this world has ever encountered. It's more powerful than anything a chemist can mix up in their laboratory. It's more powerful than the things this world can invent and bring to bear. The blood of Jesus Christ is the most powerful element this world has ever encountered. While his blood may be of the earth, the effect of his blood is out of the earth. While his blood can be applied to us spiritually, it's changing all of our eternity. There's nothing powerful enough in this world to change your eternity. It can change your life from that moment till it's ending. But the blood of Jesus Christ, once applied to your life, affects you from that moment through all of eternity. Man, I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing powerful enough to forgive our sin. It was in Sunday school we learned that the red blood of Jesus Christ could be applied to the black heart stained with sin and it would wash that heart and make it as white as snow. The blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful than your Tide Pod. It's more powerful than your Clorox bleach. The blood of Jesus Christ can purify the heart and the soul. When Christ's blood had been shed and the time had fully come, 
Jesus Christ gave up his spirit and died. In that moment, the earth was in sorrow. Heaven was in shock. And hell was slumped over in their party. What in this moment appeared to be the worst case scenario that had just played out? It was really, from humanity's perspective, the finality of death setting in. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then, the last gasp of his breath, he said, It is finished. And the onlooker said, His life is finished. He said, It is finished. The disciples said, The hope of ministry is finished. The Jews who just a week earlier had marched through the streets uh, throwing palm branches and their, and their cloaks in the road, hollering and screaming, Hosanna, the king has come. The Jews looked and heard him say, it is finished. And they said, the hope of an earthly king has died. To the Gentiles, the woman at the well, and those, of that, in, those types of encounters with Jesus, who may have had some hope of reconciliation between Gentiles and Jews, who seen a hope in, in a Jew that wasn't prejudiced towards them, who were looking for a future. To them in that moment when he said, it is finished, to them reconciliation died. To all the squealing imps in hell, when he said it is finished, they rose a toast to God's plan having failed. When Jesus said it is finished to heaven, the unknown purpose of God became confusing. It didn't make sense. What's going on? Why did God go to earth just to die? But these are all perspectives from people who didn't know the plan. These are all perspectives from groups and individuals that didn't understand the plan. When he said it is finished, he wasn't just speaking in a natural sense. When Jesus Christ said it is finished, he said something in the spiritual realm that changes all of eternity. He said Death, your hold is over. Sin, your curse is broken. When he said it is finished, he gave us absolute liberty by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was in that moment, it is finished. That the veil, and we haven't got there yet on Wednesdays, but we'll get there. The veil in the temple that separated the holies and the holies of holies. Behind that veil in the holies of holies, the priest was only allowed to go in there at certain times for certain reasons to do certain ceremonies. And behind that veil sat the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And that's where the blood was applied for the children of Israel's sins to be atoned or to be rolled ahead until the next year. But in that moment, 
when Jesus said, it is finished. That veil in the temple on its own, or maybe God sent an angel, I don't know, tore from the top all the way to the bottom. If you would have been a priest standing in the holies and you'd seen that veil tear and the holies of holies become exposed for all of humanity to see, you would have been so fearful in that moment because humanity did not have the right to to enter into the holies of holies except at a prescribed time to do a prescribed thing. But rushing out of the holies of holies, flowing freely out of the holies of holies, all of the grace and all of the mercy of God came rushing into the holy place. It rushed out into the courtyard. It flowed through the front gate of the temple. It began to run down the street to the left and down the street to the right. It flooded the house of every neighbor that lived in that neighborhood. Jerusalem was covered with grace and mercy. Israel was covered with grace and mercy. And it flowed to the Samaritans. And it flowed to the Gentiles. And it flowed from that day to the next day. And from that generation to the next generation. And from that century to the next century. And from Bible times to our times. And the grace of God is still flowing today. There's something about the blood of Jesus. There's something powerful about the cross of Jesus Christ. To us who live on this side, the death of Jesus Christ is not a mournful event to us because we understand death brings new life. And heaven is only for the living. We understand that the death of Jesus Christ brings us the hope of forgiveness. It brings us the power of cleansing. It is through his blood and his death that there is the remission of sins. The availability of grace, the extension of mercy. Oh, I wonder if you're thankful for the cross. Could you just lift your hands this morning? Lord, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the blood. Lord, I thank you for the price that you paid. Lord, we wouldn't be here without you. Our hope would be lost without you. Lord, I give you the glory for it today. Lord, I give you the praise for it today. The story doesn't end at the cross. If you've ever been to a high school play or maybe you've gone to a a Broadway type performance, they have scenes. It goes dark and then a few seconds later, the lights come back on and the scenery is all changed and it's all different. Jesus dies on the cross, the lights go off in the story and then the lights come back on and now we're at the grave. We're at the tomb. The grave took what seemed to be the greatest of letdowns. What people had thought was a final decision and made it really final. Long as there's a body, maybe there's hope. Long as I can still see him, maybe there's hope. But there's something that happens when the body is put in the ground. It's that 
finality. It's that moment of reconciliation where we come to grasp with what we see as a reality. To those gathered on that fateful day, it was the final words of the final chapter of a story about a man from Nazareth. He had said great things. He had performed great miracles. He had gathered a great following. But to them, who once was high and lifted up in their esteem, had now just become some great man from Nazareth who had died on a cross and is being buried in a tomb. His story was over. And so the body of Jesus was removed from the cross. His followers didn't prepare for him to die. That wasn't in the plan. There was no will. Well, there was a will, but there was no will. There was no trust fund set up to, to talk about how are you going to disperse the things that Jesus didn't own. He didn't even have a pillow to lay his head on. He didn't even have any clothes left when it got to the grave. They gambled those away at the foot of the cross. And so, with no plan for the distribution of his assets, having nothing of his own which he owned, they borrowed a tomb for his burial. Knowing that Passover and Sabbath was quickly approaching, we had to get Jesus off the cross and in the ground, and we'll come back and we'll take care of it later. Passover's coming. Sabbath is coming. We've got to do these ceremonies. The body was quickly set in order and placed in the tomb. The full process of preparing the body would have to wait until later. A stone was rolled over the entrance and it was sealed. And the final words of the story had been written. The end. Yet, while it seemed final, there were those among the religious Jews who remembered the teachings of Jesus. Burying him wasn't enough. Sealing the tomb wasn't enough. So they went to the Romans and they began to inquire and say, Hey, it may be that some of these, these outrageous, crazy-minded followers of Jesus may try to sneak in during the night and steal his body. And then they would proclaim through the streets that his teachings were true and that he really did resurrect three days later. <laughs> They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they believed enough in the illusion of a resurrection that they were willing to ask Rome, will you set two soldiers by this tomb to guard it from his disciples stealing the body? Some people don't believe the truth, but they believe in the illusion of the truth enough that they'll still fight it. Write that one down. Think on that this week. I don't, all right, I have to go there. They don't believe in truth enough to obey it, but they believe in the illusion of truth enough to hold you accountable to it. Well, you said you were a Christian. Since when do you care what I believe if you don't believe it? Take that, set that over here. Message for later, 
At work, we call that parking lot items. Put that on the parking lot, and we'll come and drive that car later. <clears throat> so here, two Roman soldiers stood in front of the grave of Jesus Christ. To them, to the city of Jerusalem, to the followers of Jesus, it was over. We understand the rest of the story, but we got to put ourselves in their shoes in that moment, in that day. There was no hope. There was no promise. The oppression of Rome seemed like it would just be intimate and it would continue to push and push and push and push on them. Their greatest opportunity to be freed from the Roman oppression had just been buried in a tomb. All their hope was gone. And so they went away to fulfill their religious practice. Remembering Passover and honoring the Sabbath. And after this time had come and passed, we again bring the scene to the garden tomb. The Bible tells us in our reading it was very early in the morning. A small group of ladies come to the tomb. The intention is to properly prepare the body of Jesus Christ. In the days prior to this, the two days leading up to this moment, they've celebrated Passover and they've celebrated Sabbath. And I keep saying that and I'm going to pause here for a minute. I pray God gives us a keen sense of awareness in the spirit world. I don't want to miss what God's doing. I don't want to miss what God's working on. I don't want to miss the next promise God's preparing for my life. I don't want to miss the blessing that God wants me to bestow upon the fellow saint of God or somebody in my life. I don't want to miss the voice of God when he's speaking to me. I want a keen sense of awareness because the Jews missed it. The disciples who were following Jesus Christ missed it. They're in despair. They're in utter chaos. Their hearts are broken. Their eyes are, are just flooded with tears because Jesus has died and been buried in a tomb. Yet, they knew him. They walked with him. They lived with him. And they knew he was the offspring of David, as was prophesied. And they still missed it. They had walked the streets of Galilee. They had walked the streets of all the Gentile cities. They had seen him heal the sick and raise the dead. They had watched him give um, sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. They had watched him go to Zacchaeus' house and seen a tax collector repent. Talk about a miracle. They seen the miraculous that God did as it had been prophesied. 
They heard him teach about the kingdom as was prophesied. They just, in the days prior, watched him die on the cross just as their patriarchs, their prophets had prophesied. You would think at this point, somebody might have said, you remember all the prophecies? Do you see any correlation? Maybe we should talk about this. Yet they still missed it. This is where it really starts to blow my mind. They missed the prophecies. They missed it when he died on the cross. But they couldn't properly anoint and prepare his body for burial because they had to celebrate Passover. We're literally going to stop taking care of the body of Jesus Christ so we can go celebrate the death of a lamb whose blood was shed so that we could be saved from bondage. Click. 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 It's like trying to start a car with a dead battery. It just ain't happening. The celebration of the blood of the Lamb still didn't make it click for them. God, give us awareness to what you're doing in the Spirit. Give us eyes to see. Give us a mind to comprehend. Give us a heart to be receptive. Give us a spirit of boldness to live it and believe it and walk after it. Give us faith. When God's working, let us be a part of the plan He is fulfilling. Unpause. So this small group of ladies is heading to the tomb to properly prepare the body of the deceased. They've already missed it. Yet, they've become so engulfed in the details of the current events, what they missed was the big picture. We have a saying, they missed the forest because of the trees. They couldn't grasp the reality because they were living in the unbelievable. Yet, when they arrived, the stone was rolled away. The soldiers were asleep. And the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And they stood there in confusion, perplexed. What's going on? I'm sure they were rushed. A sudden rush of emotion and questions took over their mind and their bodies. Hold on a second. I've got to re-grip myself in the bearings of what's happening. I just mourned the death of this man. I've come here to do my, my obligation as his friends to prepare his body. And now he's not here. What's going on? Has somebody stolen him? Have the Romans pulled a dirty trick on us? What's happened to the body of Jesus Christ? We just want to finish it. We just want to close this chapter out. How can I move on if I can't finish this part of it? I need closure. I need to end this. What is happening? 
And while they're pondering, and while they're perplexed, and while they're confused, and while their emotions are, are all out of sorts and in chaos, the angels appear unto them and ask a pretty important question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And it clicked. He's not here because he is alive. He is alive. He's resurrected. He lives forevermore. Heaven is for the living. You see, our Lord and Savior lives in heaven. He didn't die and be transported to heaven. But he is a living Savior, living in heaven, working for our good, sending his blessings to us, having the angels ascending and descending, messengers doing the work of the kingdom. He is pouring out his spirit on us. He is giving us forgiveness and direction in our lives. He brought us hope and promise. He's orchestrating all of this from the throne of heaven. He is a living Savior. So the Bible teaches us, and you know it to be true because of your own life experience, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. I never want to live a life of sin. I never want the bondages of sin to grip hold of us again, and you probably have the same desire, never to be bound by sin again. But let us not too quickly forget the weight we carried when we were bound in sin. Because if we forget where we came from, we'll lose appreciation for where we are. Hello, USA. The sinner sees no hope for eternal life. Those bound by the curse of sin live with the weight of death on their shoulders. They live with the emotion of fear of the grave under the bondage that hell has placed on them. But Jesus Christ made a way for this curse to be removed, for the expectation of death to be transformed into new life and life abundant. It's the power of the gospel message. It's by the working of Jesus Christ that we have this truth in us. That we too, like Christ did, we can die. We can be buried and we can be resurrected. You see, when I come to an altar and I bow my knee and I surrender to God and I ask Him to become the Lord of my life, I say I die out to who I am because I see a hope in who I can become. I die out in death just as Christ gave it all up on the cross. I give it all up on this altar and I die out to my past. And in that death, forgiveness is given to us. Forgiveness of our sin is received. And then we leave the altar and we go into the watery baptism, the grave of the baptistry. And we are buried under the water in baptism, Romans says, in like manner as Christ was buried in the tomb. 
When you go under the water, you are separated from a past of sin. Woo! To the religious of this world who have thrown away the practice of baptism, you're missing it. You need to read the Bible again. You need to study out the beauty and the power and the authority of baptism. There's something that happens when the name of Jesus Christ is pronounced over you and you're buried in that watery grave. Your past can no longer haunt you. Your sin no longer has a hold on you. The grips of addiction can be broken off your life. The memories can lose their sting. The hurt can be healed. The weight is gone. There's something beautiful about the burial in a watery grave. And then on Resurrection Sunday, we're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is the resurrection power of us that comes in us. And it is the power to overcome future sin. And it is the power to live according to the will and the plan of God in our life. Can I tell you today, heaven is for the living. So don't stop at dying at an altar and being buried in a tomb, but be resurrected and filled with His Spirit. Don't just let your past be healed, but let your future be promised. Let your future come to pass in all that God wants to do for you. Let His Spirit fill you and lead you and guide you and instruct you in your future. Be filled with His Spirit, because heaven is for the living. John 3, Nicodemus, who was one of the good bad guys. He was one of the good guys, incognito, living amongst the bad guys, trying to figure it all out in his head. Before he become exposed as a follower of Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 tells us by night Nicodemus came to Jesus. Hey prophet. We know there's something about you for all the miracles that you do. In his religious pious way. He just begins to throw the accolades at Jesus. Trying to build him up. To us, this should be humorous. You're trying to give Jesus God robed in flesh an ego trip. Okay. Hey, God, I think you're pretty great. Does it really go? Do you really need to say that? I mean, it kind of goes without saying. God, I think you're doing a great job here on the earth. Thanks, Nicodemus. I needed your approval and your affirmation because I was wondering if this was going to work. No, Jesus didn't respond to the, the ego trip or the affirmation. He completely sidestepped all the compliments that Nicodemus threw at him. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Whoa. That's a huge left turn, man. 
I was just talking about your miracles and all the cool stuff you were doing. And now you're throwing this back at me that I have to be born again. How is it even possible? How am I supposed to re-enter my mother's womb and be born again? How is that even possible, Jesus? And Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and spirit. Being born of the water is that step of baptism. That's part of the death. But being born of the Spirit is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Just like it happened in the book of Acts. And that is the part where we become alive. And heaven is for the living. You see, we need the Holy Ghost to be made alive. It's part of our ticket to getting from here to there. Because Romans also tells us, except the same Spirit which was in Christ dwell in us, it will quicken our mortal bodies. It will cause us to be lifted up in that moment. You want the rocket fuel for the rapture? You need the Holy Ghost. It's the infilling of His Spirit that will blast us from here to there. Because heaven is for the living. Heaven is for the living. And you come alive in your spirit when you are filled with the Holy Ghost. I have to continue here. It was the creation and God's creating. And in five days, God created the heavens and the earth, the light and the birds and the creeping things and the sea and the fish and the fowl of the air and, and the plants and the trees and everything, all this. And then the sixth day come and God's continuing his creation. And in the sixth day, God created humanity. unique thing about the creation of humanity God did not say let there be humans could have he said let there be light he said let there be a sun let there be a moon his word spoke all of creation into existence but when it came to you and I humanity he didn't speak us into existence he formed us with his hands in his own likeness you've got God fingerprints on you And there stood a clay model of humanity. Not living, not animated. And the Bible says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living soul. The only way that you're alive is because of the breath of God. Then Genesis chapter 3 happened. Thank you, Adam and Eve. What God breathed to life, sin put the curse of death on. And now from that time till now... Humanity 
while a living being lives with a curse of sin on its spirit and on its soul, knowing that there is only one hope for that curse to be broken, and that's through Jesus Christ. And when we come to Him, He breaks the curse through our death, but He breathes new life into us when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Your soul, which was made alive in its creation died because of sin, is made alive again by the infilling of the Holy Ghost, by the breath of God blowing upon you. The infilling of the Holy Ghost, that in the Greek is the word pneuma, the literal breath of God breathing into you. If you want to come alive in your spirit, be filled with His Spirit. If you want to come alive in this life, be filled with the Holy Ghost. It is the representation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ alive in our lives. I could Bible study that the rest of the day, but i got to keep moving on. Not only do you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost to be made alive and to get your ticket to heaven... You need to be refilled with the Holy Ghost every time you start to die in this world. Every time sin comes into your heart. Every time you falter into temptation. Every time worldliness tries to take over. Every time we stumble and fall in this life, death is trying to regrip itself on us. And I need a refilling of the Holy Ghost to make me alive again so that I can stay saved. You see, we don't only preach Acts chapter 2, but we preach all of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches where he admonished to them, be filled with his spirit, speak in other tongues, let the Holy Ghost flow through you, be empowered by his spirit, let his spirit lead you and guide you. So, here comes that age old question. Well, how often must I be refilled with the Holy Ghost? It's a great question. Sometimes people ask that question from a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Action-oriented mindset. If I'm filled with the Holy Ghost three times a week, will I make it to heaven? I don't know. Do you only need it three times a week? Because if you need it five times a week and you only do it three times a week, you may find yourself spiritually dead. So, Sister Ashley, you may appreciate my answer to this question. I came up with an equation that will answer how often you need to be refilled with the Holy Ghost. Help me out there, media man. Here is the equation. The frequency in which you have worldliness or carnality or humanity in your life equals the frequency in which you need a refilling of the Holy Ghost. When I get worldly, I need to run to an altar 
Jesus, fill me with your spirit again. When my carnality begins to build itself up inside of me and I begin to look towards the things of this world and look inward, I need to run to an altar, run to my closet of prayer. Lord, fill me with your spirit again. When worldliness begins to clog my mind and it begins to infiltrate my thoughts and my opinions and my viewpoints, I need to run to God. Fill me with your spirit again. Our propensity to die in the Spirit should be less than our willingness to crucify our flesh again. That means I should be more willing to run to an altar and ask God for a refilling than I am to let my spirit die. I don't want my spirit to die. I don't want my spirit to become complacent. I don't want my spirit to become like a worn over patch in my heart that's calloused and doesn't feel the moving of God's spirit any longer. I don't want my soul to become backslidden in any way at all. So my willingness to die must be less than my willingness to live. My desire to live has to be greater than my willingness to die. Well, that makes sense, preacher. No, 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 no. It's an upside-down world because this world says, live for the pleasure, live for the fame, live for the fortune, live for the things this world has to offer you, live for your carnal desires, live for the worldly wishes that you have, live for everything that this life has to offer you. And when you embrace this world, a little part of our spirit dies. I'm preaching to us today. I need a refilling of the Holy Ghost because heaven is for the living. And here's what I've discovered. There's far less crucifying of my flesh when I stay full of the Holy Ghost and spiritually alive. There's been seasons in my life where I needed a lot more Jesus than I had. And I'd find myself on Sunday trying to get a hold of Jesus. Week, every week, week, week after week after week. Sunday morning became about me trying to get a hold of Jesus. When Jesus was like, I'm here on Monday and Tuesday. I'm right here on Wednesday. When Thursday comes around, no need to wait till Sunday. I'm right here. When Friday shows up and I'm ready to celebrate my successes from the week or, or lament my problems for the week and I'm so wrapped up in this world I can't see the forest because of all the trees that are happening, Jesus is like, I'm right here. And Saturday I give my Saturday away to do the things of this world and then Jesus is like, well, I guess I'll be there tomorrow too. And we rush into church on Sunday. Lord, I need some Jesus. And he's like, yes, you do. And I'm right here for you. So what am I preaching to us today? I'm preaching to you today that heaven is for the living. And there's something beautiful about the cross. 
There's something beautiful about him being buried in a tomb and resurrecting from that tomb. And the beauty of the story is uh, he didn't go to heaven a dead Savior. He went to heaven a living Savior. And we don't have to go to heaven as dead saints. Uh, We can go to heaven as living saints. Because he promised to give us life and life more abundant. Would you stand with me? This morning. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.